Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking today about Japan and their obsession with robotics, Keith, and well, they've got an ageing population, poor old Japan. And I mean, we've got an ageing population here in Australia, but they've even got more of an ageing population. Like, their people are old and they're not being replaced. So, of course, what do you do when that happens to your country? You've got to go to robots. But that's pretty, it's a pretty scary notion. Well, it is. So this is Japan 5.0. It's a government program. If you go onto YouTube and Google five point, the Japan 5.0, you'll see a lot of uh, short government videos um, explaining the joys of Japan 5.0. So there's one which uh, has a little girl. At the end, we can see that she's living in an isolated part of Japan, rural isolated part. And uh, she wakes up, receives a package delivered by an autonomous vehicle. And so, you know, even though she's living obviously a long way from town, these things, and you can see in the pictures, these things are, are on the move all the time. It's sort of a FedEx in the air, if you like. So she gets something delivered. She goes into the kitchen and asks the refrigerator, what should she have for breakfast? And the refrigerator says, look, we'll produce such and such for you. So she's ready to go off to school. And then she says to the little house organiser, order me some sandwiches. And so the sandwiches are ordered through this little, it looks like an inverted uh, coffee cup, really. So we then see her dashing out of the house. She's got, I assume it's the grandmother, who's getting a remote health advice. So the medical expert is checking her diagnostics, but the doctor is a long way away, so it's all coming through her computer screen. It says farewell to the, the grandmother, and then we see her running down the garden path into the store where she picks up the sandwich which she has just ordered through the house organiser, right? So by the time she arrives, she then picks up the sandwich. She swipes her telephone, so it's a cashless transaction. So she pays for it on the spot. Then she gets outside the store waiting for the bus to arrive. And then while she's waiting, a a handsome young fellow comes along. So I think what the Japanese are trying to do is to say, even in a high-tech world, there's still scope for romance. And then the bus arrives and it's driverless. So she gets on this driverless vehicle, which then takes her out through the countryside and off to school. So this is Japan 5.0. So you're in a society where you don't have household help. You've got a refrigerator, which can do the cooking for you, which is, and you've also got a house organiser that'll take your order for you and then speak, or so to speak, speak to the store and say, my owner would like to have such and such a sandwich. He'll be coming in shortly. So it's already prepared for her by the time she arrives. It's a cashless society, so she's not carrying any coins or notes, and it's driverless vehicles. So this is Japan 5.0. As you say, the issue for Japan is that it's an ageing society. Now, you've got two ways of dealing with this problem. Well, the obvious one is to encourage Japanese to have more babies than they won't. You know, you you make a choice between buying a new car or having a baby. You'd go for the new car. So what is... uh, So so that's not really an option, right? Okay. So the two options. One is you bring in more migrant labour, and the Japanese are beginning to a bit of that, but it's a very racially pure society. It's no pleasant way of putting it. It's a racially pure society. To be born Japanese, you have to be born of parents whose own parents were Japanese. So you've got to go all the way back to your grandparents to make sure that you're Japanese. Why does it matter so much to them? Well, that's just the way they do citizenship. 
citizenship goes down through the bloodline. Now, in Australia, the United States, United Kingdom, you get your citizenship by rocking up, swearing allegiance to the flag or the queen or whatever, and you get accepted as an Australian or as an American or as a Briton. Whereas in Japan, citizenship goes down through the bloodline, which is why you've still got Koreans living in Japan who see themselves as Koreans and not Japanese. They're the ones who are remitting money home to North Korea. So Japan was an imperial power until 1945 when it lost World War II. It lost control of the Korean peninsula, but it had on the Japanese mainland some Koreans who were busy working for the Japanese. They couldn't go back or wouldn't go back to the Korean peninsula So they stayed on in Japan, but they don't have Japanese citizenship. So you've now got grandchildren. It's a problem, by the way, in Germany, which also operates that way. So you have Gastarbeiter, Turkish guest workers, who don't necessarily get German citizenship, whereas you could be born in Russia and argue that you have a right to be a German citizen because your grandfather or grandmother might have been German. So it's a very different system of citizenship. So one way that Japan could solve its population problem would be simply to allow more migrant workers to come in. But that would dilute the nature of Japanese society. They're allowing in a few more than before, but they've got a long way to go before you you reach the situations you see in the US or Australia or the United Kingdom. So that's one way. You allow in more workers, but the Japanese are not too keen on that. The alternative, therefore, is to become a pioneer in robotics. In other words, that you employ robots to do things because you don't have humans to do it. And just can I quickly ask one more question, Keith, which I'm sure you'll be able to shed some light on. Just culturally, why don't Japanese people want to have more kids? Is there some sort of reason that's driving? Has anybody done any research around the, the reasons? All the way around the world, there is now a defusing of the population bomb. So if you go back to the 1960s, a bestseller around that time was called The Population Bomb. It was written by Professor Paul Ehrlich an American academic, and he argued on what's called neo-Malthusian lines. So Reverend Thomas Malthus was an English economist and clergyman who 200 years ago, just over 200 years ago, warned that the population increases faster than food can be produced. And so he talked about a world of starvation. Now, he was proved wrong because with colonisation, the United States, Canada, New Zealand and Australia were opened up. And so food flooded into the United Kingdom. So you didn't get the mass starvation that Malthus predicted. But then Malthus, in a sense, had his writings dusted off in the 1960s by Professor Paul Ehrlich and his supporters who said, oh, no, we're going to head towards this population bomb because people were being born too quickly. We had solved the death problem because we were keeping people alive longer but people were still having too many children. So we've got to get population and death back into balance, which we're now doing. So the warnings that he was giving really are not applicable. Perhaps Africa is the one with still a bit of a growing population, but even that's slowing down now. So uh, we see in a case like Japan, middle-class, well-educated young women don't want to become mothers. In fact, quite often they don't want to get married. So... uh, They are quite happy being single and living on their own. You've got Japanese men who are not that necessarily interested in marriage. So you're living in a society uh, without much romance. 
Singapore has got a problem. Remember the Singapore government created a love boat where they (laughs) they would get together these single lawyers and doctors, professional people, and put them out on these luxury cruises around Singapore Harbour in the hope that they could spark a bit of romance. Oh, isn't that funny? So if you're in workaholic societies, and Japan is an incredibly workaholic society, then you don't have energy for romance, let alone inclination. (laughs) And so that's why the, the Japanese empress is so important, because she's been a role model, because she's a wedding cake. See, a wedding cake. Um, what do you mean? You got to marry by the age of 25. Remember, no, Christmas cake, Christmas cake, Christmas cake. So, Christmas cakes are for December 25. And so, you need to be married by the age of 25, which is why women going into university get discriminated against. Because the prevailing view amongst universities is that these women are not going to stay on in the workforce beyond the age of 25. So it's a really interesting culture. Now, the um, the person who's married to the emperor is a professional woman who uh, uh, has continued to work beyond the age of 25. Now she's got to be producing some children, which I think she has done. I'm I'm not very Mm. familiar with the current emperor. That's all right. Yeah, I don't think you you can't be across everything, (laughs) (laughs) Keith. So what we see then in Japan is a situation of a country that's emptying out. So it's got a declining number of people. And the figures are really quite frightening. I was looking at one report of the number of people who are going to be missing from the the country. Japan's population is likely to shrink from 127 million today to 88 million in 2065. Wow. And down to 60 million by the year 2100. So it will have gone down in half in the next 85 years. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking about the rise of robotics, oh, well, in the world, but particularly today, Japan, because they've got such an ageing population, such an issue, that they need to fill the void. And their population's going to, as we just talked about, halve in the next 100 years. That's right. Now, what is interesting, the Japanese very explicitly, with Shinzo Abe as Prime Minister, this is clearly Shinzo Abe's legacy when it comes to politics. So he talks about Japan 5.0. So in the beginning, society 1.0 was basically the hunter-gatherer society. Then you beget society 2.0, which is the beginning of the farming society, which begins after the last ice age, let's say 13,000 BC. We also call it the Holocene era and all the rest of it. So you get the farming being invented. Then you go to get on to society 3.0, which is industrial society. So that's your factories, etc., which begins in Great Britain around the year 1750. That's a convenient day that a lot of, a lot of us use. So you've got heavy industry, the chemical industry, etc., being developed from 1750 onwards. Then society 4.0, is the information society. So you've then got things like computer, the internet, etc. Now we're up to society 5.0, which brings together a lot of these developments. So one of the big breakthroughs is what's called the internet of things. So at the moment we have about two, perhaps three billion people connected to the internet. But eventually everything will be connected to the internet. Now you've got a mobile phone there which is revealing where you are at this very moment, right? So as you move around, 
then people can track you down, mm. right? This is seen to be as a good thing, right? So you've got already got your own tracking device built in, but we'll probably put it in your arm as well, along with your medical file. So wherever you get taken sick in the world, they can scan the medical file in your arm and just see, you know, that you're allergic to penicillin or, or whatever. So they can see at a glance what your medical history is uh, rather than having them ring back to your doctor. Remember, you may, you may be in a coma, so therefore not able to say who your doctor is. They can just look at your arm and get all your medical file off that. So you will end up, eventually, the figure keeps varying. It's 30 billion, 40 billion items will be on the internet of which will be humans who be 2 to 3 billion, 4 billion perhaps. The rest will be your mobile phone, will be your car, your toaster, your refrigerator, and they'll all be talking to each other. But do you think that human nature will allow us to allow this to happen? Because half the people didn't want their medical records accessed recently, you know. Oh, don't worry. They'll be broken down and get in. And they'll be driven into that. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. People like you are old-fashioned, you're talking about... Privacy, <laughs> civil liberties, all this sort of stuff. From a, from an IT point of view, you're being driven into that because you people ju- will just simply say, "Well, you're you're not going to have any cash. You're going to have to put it through your mobile phone." Mm. As well as being monitored like they are in China at the moment. Exactly, with that's which we've also looked at. So that that way they can monitor what you're doing on the internet. They can monitor what you're spending, uh, and they can link that into your face and your name and your file. So if you're a cyclist and you behave badly, you can be fined and your bank account debited by the time you get home. So they've, so got, they've got access to everything. They've got access to everything. Now, the Japanese are working down that way. That's why when you look at the Japanese government's propaganda, they have these attractive young people as if to say, look, we will still remain a humane society. It'll be a humanitarian society, even though... It's going to be a, a society of more and more robots. So you, you check into a Japanese hotel, the person at the desk will be a robot. They've already got them working. So the robots will get your name and your details. That's all part of the Internet of Things. Now, I think there are immense issues with the Internet of Things, right? I'm not an evangelist. My job is simply to get people to think about the unthinkable. I'm trying to broaden people's perspectives on what is going on in the world because, unfortunately, so many people go through with a very limited interest of what goes on in the world. Remember, in Australia, the top 20 TV programs, 17 are on sport, three are on cooking. And so we're going to be blindsided by change. No Australian government talks about society 5.0, and yet you go to Japan and you find the Australian, the Japanese government with their own propaganda, videos, etc. And the Japanese Prime Minister going to a very big conference uh, last year in Germany, boasting about how Japan will be a leader in this field. So this was something which was launched three years ago in Japan, Japan 5.0, and it is transforming Japanese society. And poor old Australia, we're still you know, arguing over food stuff and all the rest of it. We will still be growing food, but will we have too many farmers doing it? Or will it be done by GM genetic modification and farming 
completely differently from what we've got at the moment. When you look at Japan as well, it's not exactly the happiest society in the world. So they're going down the path, yes, that this is going to technologically make them the most advanced nation in the world, most probably. However, they've also got the highest suicide rate in the world, Keith. Like this is not a happier society. No, because it's a very intense society. But who knows, perhaps in Japan 5.0, there'll be less pressure to work. You might be more relaxed. Or maybe if they brought back family values, <laughs> that would help. That's right. They, they may well have more time for romance. <laughs> so this is a to be continued conversation. So all I'm saying is pay attention to Japan 5.0, Japanese government program, which has real implications. The Chinese are going about this in a slightly different way, but the Chinese are also getting across this issue via the social credit system, which we've looked at in this series. But... In the Western world, we're just limping along, arguing about small stuff, whereas China and Japan, for good or ill, are leaping ahead into the full use of information technology. Well, what do you think Australia then needs to do to be able to catch up or or to change direction even? Well, there's a lot more that we can be doing. A very basic one is we should recreate the Commission for the Future, which some of us were involved in campaigning for 30 years ago. And Canberra bureaucrats got wound up because they said, it's not your job to be thinking about the future. The market will tell you what your future is. You don't try to design it. That's the worry that I've got, that we have people who just say, leave it all to the market. And of course, it is in leaving it to the market that we end up with losers in our society through globalisation, and they then have ultimately turned to violence. I, and, just, and just quickly before we go, explain to me what leave it to the market means because I just, I'm not sure if I fully understand that concept. So leave it to the market means that um, the economy is the number one factor in your life and it will determine what you will do with your life. It's as simple as that. So everything is reducible to economics. But, of course, if you look at the Brexit debate, That was the mistake that the commentators made because they said at the end of the day, the British will vote on economic lines. But instead, a majority of people voted to leave on cultural lines because they were saying, yes, we might end up poorer, but at least we will be able to regain British culture, whatever that is. But it was a cultural issue, not an economic issue. It's interesting, isn't it's it? It's very interesting. Mm, Subject right. for never, another program. Absolutely. We'll leave it there, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.